Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, I am Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church, and it is a joy to be worshiping with you this morning uh, on this uh, feast day of the transfiguration of Jesus. Let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Again, we pray, Almighty God, mercifully grant that we, being delivered from the disquietude of this world, may by faith behold the King in his beauty. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I was meditating on each of the passages this week, thinking about the transfiguration, and one word just kept coming up as I was meditating. It's this word, disquietude. How many of you have used that in a sentence? (laughs) Right? Uh, I, I don't know about you, but that is not a word that I use very often. Actually, I don't use it at all. Uh, and I love it. It is a wonderful word, disquietude. And it reminds me of in, when you read Psalms 42 and 43. We didn't read those this morning, but if you read those, there's at least three times where the psalmist says in those two psalms, uh, you know, why are you cast, cast down, O my soul? Uh, why are you so disquieted within me? So there's the, the adjectival form. Why are you so disquieted within me? And then he ends with this resolute hope in God, uh, for I will yet again praise him. There's this hope uh, in God, but, but not today uh, in Psalms 42 and 43. Today he's pondering the disquietude within him. And that's a really helpful, um, it's a helpful posture. Today's, today's transfiguration passage in the Gospels is kind of like, a dispelling of disquietude, a dispelling of disquietude for God's beloved. Um, it's interesting, you know, Jesus is called the, the beloved, but not in the gospel passage, but in Peter's reflection on this gospel passage in the epistle that we read, the voice came down from heaven and calls him beloved. And you and I as children of God are also entering into the beloved as beloved children of God. Um, we know that in Luke 9 and 10 leading uh up to this and just after this, Jesus is going to predict his suffering and his death. And that's not fully understood by the disciples of Jesus yet. Peter just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That's a big confession to make. Um, And so when we think of Christ's ministry, one of the questions is, have they yet put together This idea that this victorious Messiah, the Son of God that you read about in the Psalms, like 110 and Psalm 2, is that the same person that is going to be the suffering servant in Isaiah? Have they put that together yet? Because it seems like over and over they haven't really connected the dots as far as um, the suffering and the death that Jesus describes for himself. And then Jesus tells them to take up their cross daily and follow him which is even more mysterious because they haven't yet fully worked out that Jesus will die on the cross. And so they're not exactly sure what this is meaning, but they're going to find out. And so the transfiguration is this 
necessary glimpse of the glory of what God's kingdom looks like. To remind the disciples and to remind you and I that the darkness of the valleys of demons that we come down to, that they're about to come down to, and the darkness of the hill of that ugly little hill outside Jerusalem called Golgotha are the pathway to God's glory, the glory that's associated with God's heavenly throne. That they're not, uh, in a, they're not in antipathy, they're not against one another, that somehow in the mystery of God, the valley of demons, the darkness of the hill of Golgotha are all subsumed under God's heavenly glory, that this was part of the process. And they're seeing the glimpse of that glory on what might be Mount Tabor. So we need this glimpse of God's glory because bearing our cross daily is a very disquieting experience. Um, there is hope in the kingdom of God for those who feel disquieted in their hearts. But there are days that we may not feel that hope, right? And so we resolve to hope in the glory that's to come, even when uh, the rest of us doesn't follow with that, kind of like the psalmist. And as we wait, what we're invited into in the transfiguration is to listen. We're invited to listen to the voice of the beloved, the one who leads us to the God who rescues us, as the, as the colleague prayed, uh, from the disquietude of the world. And so the transfiguration shows us how the glory of God is manifest for our hope during those times where we are in the valley of demons and in the times where we are at the darkness of Golgotha. And Peter, James, and John here are, are the three disciples who go with him. They would later become the pillars of the church, we find out in the book of Acts. And they were brought with Jesus to a prayer time on a mountain. And Jesus had said a few things that week that alluded to his death. They're a little bit confused as they walk up the hill. It's late. They're tired. But what does it mean for them to take up their cross? Uh, and, and what does it mean that they are not going to taste death? until uh, they see the kingdom of God. It's one of the other mysterious things he's just said in the chapter. There are some of you, uh, some of you here who will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God. And so they're contemplating their mysteries, uh, these mysterious statements in tiredness and in exhaustion up the mountain. And so when they're on the mountain, they see Jesus transfigured before them. And there are two major Figures from Israel's past that are with Jesus. The first is Moses. The second is Elijah. Moses looks back to, of course, the Exodus, where God brought his people out of Egypt, uh, really the great prophet of Israel who gave them the law. Elijah points to the eschaton, the future, where God will deliver his people. And, and the three of them are discussing Jesus's, I think our translation said departure. In Greek, it's Exodus. Uh, Jesus's Exodus that he is about to effect from Jerusalem. And so the mountaintop experience is going to prove to be really useful as they're about to leave the mountaintop. And when they get to the valley below, they are going to discover a valley filled with people that are hurting, that are filled with demons, a valley of trials, a valley of tribulations. And they would walk through it with Jesus on, on their way to the hill on the outskirts of Jerusalem where Jesus would ultimately be crucified. And all of this was within the plan of God. They'd be forced to consider how the glory that they were experiencing on this Mount of Transfiguration could be reconciled with the ugliness of that little hill during Jesus' betrayal and death. 
And that journey was training them to carry on the mission of Jesus. That journey from the mountaintop to the valley to where Jesus is crucified is training them to carry on the mission of Jesus. And so allowing God to settle the disquietude of our souls means that we need to start by asking where the mission of God might seem like it's at cross purposes with our own trajectory or uh, where we would like to be, where it's at cross purposes even with our desires. Start there. I, I remember hearing from a friend about somebody else who had felt like they couldn't pursue the vocational calling that God was bringing them into, really what God had made them for, um, because they needed to take care of an aging parent, and that was really hard for them. And, and it would have been good for this person to see this limitation on their desires and, and, and to see that as actually being the will of God, not opposed to it. And in doing something else for an income and taking care of their parent for a season, that they weren't actually missing out on the will of God um, that they were living into it. They thought of missing out. They thought they were missing out on what God had made them to be, uh, to do. And that was greatly disturbing them. That was disquieting within them. So much so that, you know, as a result, they, they went after their desires, pushed through God-given limitations um, to pursue their aspirations, to the neglect of the sort of responsibilities God had called them to. And that strained the relationship with the parents who eventually passed away. And then this person who did this lived with quite a deep sense of regret about the choices they'd made. Now, can God redeem this? Of course he can, right? God, um, God gives us second chances. That's what grace is. Um, but this, this person, just remember, they still have a future as God's beloved child, but I wonder if what they were doing was taking a shortcut uh, a shortcut to avoid a painful road, uh, a slow road. And, and I can't know their heart, of course, so you know, I'm just using this as an example because I can't see their inward thoughts. But I do often wonder where we, and I'm including myself in the we here, I often wonder where we are tempted to take shortcuts, to make the ends justify the means. I wonder if in taking shortcuts to gratification and glory, there's this desire to see the glory of the kingdom without the dark valleys and the hill of Golgotha that we might have to go through. Perhaps going through the process of walking with Jesus in the valley to, to do the hard work of, of learning to find his presence in our limits, having patience with a balance of grief and hope would actually be the way to listen to the voice of the beloved and for that voice of the beloved to cut through all the noise that's disquieting our souls. And so the transfiguration also teaches us to listen to Jesus in the waiting period. Everyone thought the kingdom of God was going to come. This was true in St. Peter's day as well, and that's why he has to say, keep waiting in that epistle. There are some who thought, well, Jesus isn't coming back. We're not seeing the glory. And he says, keep waiting. So in, we're in this in-between, this waiting period right now, you and I are. And when the disciples and Jesus are on the mountain uh, with Moses and Elijah, Peter says something, right? And it's sort of humorous. Somebody has to say something, right? Uh, no, of course not. No one has to say anything, but Peter does, and I resonate with that. Um, 
he says, you know what, it's really good that all three of us are here, all six of us are here. Um, and it's just kind of humorous, right? It's, it's really good that we're here. Yes, it is. Thanks for stating that. Um, so let's make three tents, right? We'll have a tent for Jesus. We'll have a tent for Elijah and a tent for Moses, which to us seems like a really strange thing to say. Like, why is that the conclusion? Um, but the reference here is to the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, it looks back to the Exodus, where God saved his people out of Egypt, and they dwelt in these uh, um, tents in the wilderness. And so they did that every year to commemorate God's salvation in the past, but also to look for it in the future. And so there's actually, it logically makes sense why he would want to build tents, even if he wasn't right about that. And it looks ahead towards the future deliverance of God's people. And so what, what he sees, he sees that the departure of Moses and Elijah is about to happen. They're, they're going. We're about to return to normal life. Um, but he is seeing a glimpse of God's heavenly kingdom, and he does not want that to end. He wants to prolong the experience of the glory of God. And that makes complete sense, right? Uh, but tents wouldn't have been appropriate here because when God's kingdom is ultimately culminated, everything will be made new. And this was just a taste of God's kingdom. So St. Peter doesn't fully grasp the, the gravity of this event that's before him. It takes him a couple decades to think about it before he writes about it in his epistle. And he doesn't really grasp the inadequacy of the thing he's just proposed his job wasn't to do anything right now. His job was to listen. His job wasn't to do anything. It was just to listen. And so when they're on the mountain, after Peter speaks too quickly, a cloud comes. And this cloud overshadows them and the voice speaks, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Right? You can sort of hear this. Listen to him, not to do anything, to listen. And the illusion brings together some really important themes in the Old Testament. There is this Messiah king that we read about in Psalm 2 uh, and in Psalm 110, other places. We expect the Messiah to be a reigning king for his kingdom to come. What we don't expect is for this king to suffer. And so in Isaiah 42, when you read about the suffering servant, the servant in Isaiah is called God's son. And so the voice coming out here pulls together two really important themes in the Old Testament, which is God as Messiah as king and Messiah as suffering servant. And so how, we're, how are we hearing what God's son is saying to us and what we're going through? How is he calling out? Uh, how is he calling us to live into his kingdom? Right. We could be in several places on this journey. You might find yourself at the mountaintop right now, not wanting things to end. God, don't let your glory go anywhere. I would love to build a tent so that we can just keep this moment going. Um, think of the Asbury revival, right? Like you know, we, we just want to keep going. Um, you might find yourself coming down from the mountain. And as you're coming down from this marvelous experience of the glory of God, you're all of a sudden confronted with things that are too big to understand. That there are, there are, There's a mess in front of you that you need to deal with, and it just feels overwhelming to even think about untangling that mess. Or perhaps you've made it past that point, but then you find yourself in agony 
and wondering where God is. Or you might be in any number of places along that path. Are we sitting at the feet of our Lord and listening as he teaches us the ways of God's kingdom where, where nothing is disturbed and where we're delivered from the disquietude from the world? I just love that phrase from the Collect. And that, and so this isn't my own insight. It comes from somebody else. But somebody's helpfully pointed out that in when we're in a time of great joy or when we're in a time of great sorrow, whichever the circumstance, we often fail to completely grasp the full magnitude of where God has led us. So we might be in a season of joy. We might be in a season of sorrow. But we don't fully grasp the magnitude of where we're actually at. And so the voice of the beloved is often heard as we reflect and as we pay attention to those highs and the lows, the seasons of joy and the seasons of spiritual dryness. Don't be afraid of times where you feel spiritually dry. That is okay. Peter, Peter wanted the glory of the mountaintop. And if we're honest, I think all of us probably want the glory of the mountaintop, whatever that good old day was, right? And and nobody wants to feel spiritually dry, spiritually lifeless, alone. But God does bring us into those seasons. And so there are a lot of great writings in the history of the church about spiritual darkness or what some people call aridity, like arid, right? Uh, spiritual aridity. And, and so we shouldn't mistake being, feeling spiritually dry for being in a place of unfaithfulness or punishment. Sometimes God brings us in there to help us grow. And, and so in those seasons, what we should do is push deeper to listen to the voice of the Son, the voice of the Beloved. One of the doctors of the church, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, who wrote in the 15th century, she says, let us endure. Let us endure. No suffering will be so richly rewarded as weariness of heart and spiritual pain. These are the greatest sufferings there are, and so they are deserving of greater fruit. And so if Jesus was God's beloved son on the road from Mount Tabor to Golgotha, then we too are God's beloved children as we carry on the work of Jesus, because we are in Christ. We travel the way of the kingdom, continuing what Jesus has started with a listening posture, and, and whether the day's circumstances, as you look back, has brought great joy or great sorrow, we're invited into those spaces to listen to the voice of the Son, to appreciate the greater magnitude of whatever place God has us in at the time. And so pay attention to where you are on that road. Parse out where you feel like God has brought you. Are you on the mountain? Are you coming down from the mountain? Is something in front of you that looks too messy to even begin to deal with? Where do you need God's kingdom to come to heal? In a, are you in a place where you feel like you've been betrayed by those closest to you, belittled, mocked? In a place where there is no way forward except for pain and suffering and slowness. And our Lord of glory knows your journey, right? And so we can sit at Jesus' feet and pay attention to what he's doing in us, and what he's doing in others. And there's this sort of outward look that comes uh, in the glorious vision of the transfiguration. Remember that as God's beloved, our healing is for the life of the world. This is actually what we learn in the sacraments. 
that we receive God's grace to be a sacrament of grace to the world. And if we are attuned to the Son's voice amidst our disquietude, then we can then have the capacity to have compassion on other souls who are disquieted around us. And we can desire then to invite them into the places where God might give them rest, where God might give them healing. And so in the transfiguration, what we see is a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of God. We hear about this exodus or this departure that Jesus is going to bring about from the people of God in Jerusalem. We're invited to reflect on how we carry on the mission of Jesus in a world that is disquieted around us. And whether we're on the mountaintop, whether we're coming into the valley, whether we are being led to dark places that are uh, places of seeming abandonment, Jesus is there and his voice is speaking. As we sit here this morning, I would imagine that we are at various levels, in various levels of disturbance of soul, various levels of frustration, various levels of holding on to hatred and anger, impatience, unforgiveness, even unbridled indulgence, a number of things that might disquiet us this morning and disturb us. But what disturbs our souls joins us to the disquietude of the world. But the transfiguration reminds us that there is a glory that will be revealed. And, and it's this season of waiting for God's kingdom to fully come that we are formed as we're in this space listening to the, to the voice of the beloved and what he might be calling us into whether that's joy, whether that's sorrow, knowing that at the end is the kingdom of God, which at this glorious kingdom, we will be rescued from the disquietude of the world. Let me pray for us. God, who before the passion of your only begotten son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we beholding by faith the light of his countenance may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.